Let's say you're a kid at a party and you're about to grab a cookie from the dessert plate without your parents noticing. But then a grown-up comes over to you and says, one of these cookies is poisoned. Would you still eat one of the cookies? Yes, because I think I would know which one it, the poison one was. I might just not have a cookie and I might try and find out which one was poison. My brother, he loves cookies very much and so do I, but if he were just reaching for them, I'd just say, no, no, thank you. I wouldn't take the risk for him or for us. I'd probably try to like guess which one, kind of like in the close to the middle or something. I'd probably just like take a risk of like having one or like even just like a half. I wouldn't take the risk just for a cookie that you could probably have another time in your life and have more rather than have one delicious cookie and then be it, you know. I would ask, which one do you think you put um, the poison in? And then I'll ask, but why did you put the poison in the cookie? Did you, like, want to kill us? The poisoned cookie scenario is the brainchild of novelist Daniel Handler. The notion that you can play along with a deadly premise with enough sense of an irony to know that what you're doing is having fun and being in the middle of a story is seems like a prerequisite for enjoying a series of unfortunate events. And I should add, there are plenty of adults who don't find that funny either. So <laughs> there are plenty of adults who would say, I can't believe you told that child one of them is poisoned. Pre-irony can be a long state. You can get all the way to your death before and never have an appreciation of irony, or you can get it pretty quickly. So if you're only into podcasts with happy endings, then you may as well hit pause now and think twice before going on. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And on today's show, we're going to hear from Daniel Handler about his cult classic, A Series of Unfortunate Events, by Lemony Snicket. It's been adapted for film twice and recently made into a Netflix series, which Daniel's written episodes for. We'll also hear from Lemony Snicket's editor, Susan Rich, and then later on from writer Soman Shainani. He'll tell us about how a series of unfortunate events has resonated with him and his popular middle grade series, The School for Good and Evil. But first, let's get back to Daniel Handler. He talked with me through Skype from his home in San Francisco. And we're going to hear from Daniel about how he came up with the idea for a series of unfortunate events in the late 1990s. I had started this kind of mock gothic novel for adults, and it wasn't working out very well. And one of the things that was hard to work with was to think about a, a hero or a heroine of a gothic novel in kind of the modern age. And that, you know, in a typical gothic novel, a young woman is married to a mysterious man, and he lives out in the middle of nowhere in a castle, and she there's mysterious goings on and she has nowhere to go. And I was trying to write one in kind of a modern era or at least a non-time frame era. And I kept thinking, why does she just leave? As soon as I began to think, oh, well, if the hero was a child or a group of children, then suddenly you understand perfectly why they're trapped in a scenario. They have no means by which to escape. And that was really interesting to me. So suddenly this mock gothic novel that I'd been kind of pounding my head against opened up for me and it made sense to me that it could be a book for children, except that I thought there's no way that a publishing house would want to publish something like this for children. But at the time, 
Daniel was in touch with Susan Rich, who'd recently become an editor here at HarperCollins. She was looking to publish a new middle grade series and had asked Daniel to come up with an idea. And so... I told her this idea about three children and they were pursued by an evil count and horrible things kept happening to them over and over again and that they became more acquainted with the world of, um, of literature and of secrecy, but that it never helped. Everything they did never stopped the kind of endless procession of ghastly things. And she said she really liked the idea and she asked me to write it down and then for many years I did so. <laughs> Daniel actually ended up writing 13 novels for the series between 1999 and 2006. Harper Audio presents a series of unfortunate events, book the first, The Bad Beginning, by Lemony It tells the story of the Baudelaire siblings who are left orphaned after a fire breaks out at their house and kills their parents. If you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off listening to some other program. In this story, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. The children must then move in with Count Olaf, a distant relative they've never met. Turns out, He's totally evil and plotting to steal their inheritance, to the point where he even cunningly tries to marry the oldest sibling, who's only a young teen. So the title is fitting, but it was originally called The Miserable Marriage. Violet, Klaus, and Sonny Baudelaire were intelligent children, and they were charming and resourceful and had pleasant facial features, but they were extremely unlucky and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery, and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is how the story goes. He's so upfront about how terrible things are going to be and how you probably won't like it. It was almost surprising at the time that no one had done that before, that that kind of very basic reverse psychology of you don't want to read this book. That's Susan Rich, the former HarperCollins editor who encouraged Daniel to write a series of unfortunate events. Susan's now an editor at Little Brown and Company. And of course, any self-respecting 10-year-old reader is going to be like, no, you don't know me, I can handle it. And voila. And I think he has the capacity to make his audience feel seen and heard. And certainly the voice in a series of unfortunate events pays great respect to the child reader. Susan describes the series as following in the tradition of Victorian children's literature, in which terrible things happen to orphan children. But in other ways, it tread really new ground in the presence of a narrator. And it is he himself, Lemony Snicket, who's most susceptible to being frightened or upset or worried about the events that are unfolding. And he assumes that the reader is just as upset as he is. But in fact, as a reader, you're given a bit of distance from all of the discomfort 
and misfortune because Lemony Snicket is pulling his hair out over it. And when I asked Daniel to tell me about who Lemony Snicket is and why he created him, here's what he told me. He's a lonely man. He's very well read and he is wandering around a broken world, haunted by stories and hoping that telling them might do some good in the world. I think that's who he is. And I have a lot in common with that point of view, I would say. But it was just more interesting to me to have the books narrated and then written by someone who wasn't the author. Besides crafting the persona of Lemony Snicket as the narrator, Daniel hoped the Baudelaire siblings would be characters who many different readers would relate to. One of the things about the Baudelaire's is that I try to make them as kind of transparent as possible so that readers could imagine themselves more clearly in a ridiculous situation because the, the circumstances of the story are so outsized that I thought if I made them really specific characters, then the whole thing starts to feel kind of an overload. And so, I mean, the Baudelaire's are never identified by race, for instance. There's kind of hardly a notion of their own personality tics. They talk in this kind of formal, quasi-Victorian way. And it was important to me that kind of as many people as possible could imagine themselves in this situation. And so even though they have various kind of specific skills that help the story along, I think as characters, they're um, a little unknowable. And that's what I like. There are a lot of characters like that in children's literature in particular, I think, that enable children to kind of slip into that world. I mean, it's one of the things that's such a joy about how these books have gone out in the world is to receive so many letters and to meet so many young people who say, I'm just like Violet, I'm just like Klaus. And you see this huge, wide swath of humanity who all believe they're like this character. You know, and they're all ages and nationalities and persuasions and personalities. And that they, but they all think, I'm like this because I try to be brave. Or I'm like this, they think of them because of these really specific situations. And so that was really interesting to me. Whereas Count Olaf, the villain in this story, is simply despicable. Klaus stepped forward and knocked on Count Olaf's door, his knuckles rapping right in the middle of the carved eye. There was a pause and then the door creaked open and the children saw Count Olaf for the first time. Hello, hello, hello. He was very tall and very thin, dressed in a gray suit that had many dark stains on it. His face was unshaven and rather than two eyebrows, like most human beings have, he had just one big one. His eyes were very, very shiny which made him look both hungry and angry. Hello, my children. And before we hear from Daniel about how he came up with Count Olaf, we asked some of you readers out there to describe what you think makes a good villain. A villain is somebody who doesn't believe that anything good can happen and is obsessed with power for himself, and he will do whatever he or she can do to get that power someone who's only out for their personal gain and doesn't care at all about other people. Probably a villain is somebody who is evil, who knows they're evil, and who doesn't care that they're evil or doesn't want to change. How they look, like frowns and stuff, and just maybe ugly, not looking good. I'd say definitely the looks as well. 
Also, the evil laughs. Um, I feel like that's very evil-like. But just like the will to keep on trying with evil plans, sort of. I wish I could tell you that the Baudelaire's first impressions of Count Olaf and his house were incorrect, as first impressions so often are. But these impressions, that Count Olaf was a horrible person and his house a depressing pigsty, were absolutely correct. And so I asked Daniel how he came up with Count Olaf. I like to think that Count Olaf is kind of all of the horrible people I have ever met in my life rolled together. Because he, I think he manages to be unintentionally evil and intentionally evil. He manages to cook up wicked plans and do terrible things, but then he also manages, just in his own arrogance, to be constantly insulting and, you know, to put it mildly, blind to the needs of others. So it's the combination to me of the two kinds of evil, the kind that's doing it on purpose and the kind that's actually so lost in the clouds that it has no idea what it's doing. And that was a lot of fun, but you know, I've met a lot of horrible people in my life, so it was pretty easy, frankly, to come up with what a mean person might say. It wasn't my first time with mean people. You know, they go out of their way to compliment themselves, which is certainly what Count Olaf does all the time. You know, he refers to himself as a handsome person or as very successful all the time. But the children knew, as I'm sure you know, that the worst surroundings in the world can be tolerated if the people in them are interesting and kind. Count Olaf was neither interesting nor kind. He was demanding, short-tempered and bad-smelling. The only good thing to be said for Count Olaf is that he wasn't around very often. When the children woke up, and chose their clothing out of the refrigerator box, they would walk into the kitchen and find a list of instructions left for them by Count Olaf, who would often not appear until nighttime. Most of the day, he spent out of the house or up in the high tower where the children were forbidden to go. The instructions he left for them were usually difficult chores, such as repainting the back porch or repairing the windows. And instead of a signature, Count Olaf would draw an eye at the bottom of the note. At the time Daniel published The Bad Beginning, novelist Soman Chainani was in college and read the book. I remember loving it. I remember loving just how irreverent and fun and smart it was. It's sort of the next evolution of Roald Dahl, almost, which is like this ability to be funny and mordant and unique at the same time. It was a really singular style that I think fit a lot of the voices in people's heads. I think with the series and unfortunate events, it hit that nerve of kids don't like to be talked down to. And so it was just like he understood how kids feel and he had no interest in sugarcoating anything. And Soman appreciated how the book created a new niche in children's literature, one that he went on to pursue as a writer for Kids Today. I don't know if a series of unfortunate events inspired me as much as it was more of like a recognition of a kindred voice. Like reading it and being like, oh, it's cool that this voice is existing in culture now because this is sort of the narratorial voice in my head. Like I think there are a lot of us who have that kind of snarky feel and, and ability to do things. And I thought the fact that he was able to just like go so hardcore for it for kids 
was less an inspiration and more a revelation of like, oh, wow. Like, that was the other thing I learned from Series of Fortune Events is you put characters in really horrible situations and you have them point out how illegal it is. And that sort of solves the problem. Like, this cannot happen because this is immoral or this is illegal. or the, And then it happens anyway, because that's that's what life is. The moral conflicts presented in Lemony Snicket's books are ones that Soman sees as intersecting with the classic themes from various fairy tales. Like this example. The idea that Olaf just keeps coming back, <laughs> I think, is a very important lesson for kids to learn, which is like, it's like the witch in Snow White. She tries to kill her in the Grimm story, tries to kill her like three different times and keeps going back. And that's real. Like, the villain will find other ways. That's what Olaf is. Like, he slips through the cracks again and again and always comes back. And so it's a good lesson for kids. When Soman was in college, he studied fairy tales. And his passion for the subject ultimately led him to write the beginning of the School for Good and Evil series in 2013. Soman's novels are popular with tons of devoted fans. He's created a whole new genre of fairy tales. I just learned a lot about the old fairy tales and really started questioning why we grew up with the Disney versions and not the originals. And so that became really like the founding basis for the School for Good and Evil. I think I had really been concerned with that gap between the Disney tales and, and the original tales for a long time. and I didn't know what to do creatively to address it. And then I I had this image pop into my head one day of like a beautiful glass castle next to like this dark kind of dungeony castle and a girl, a princess, a girl in pink falling into the dark castle and a girl in black like a witch falling into the, the glass castle. And I thought, oh, that's such a cool image, like the, the reverse falling in and then I thought oh it's two girls they get switched in the wrong schools and they're best friends you know once I started exploring it there was so much there even to the point where Soman wrote a scene that wouldn't have stayed in the book if it hadn't been for a series of unfortunate events which as we've heard on the show today pushed the boundaries in children's literature what's funny is when I did school for good and evil there's a whole thing with you know a guy who's like a thousand years old trying to marry a 15 year old remember my editor at the time, a different editor, being like, this can't happen. Like, it's just not, can't happen. And I was like, it happened in a series of unfortunate events. And I thought it was worse in series of unfortunate events. Um, So it ended up staying because it was so clearly in that book. Someone has seen the ways in which kids today are engaging with concepts of good and evil at a much younger age than he did as a kid. I think the Disney mentality of here's the good guy, here's the bad guy, And if you look at over time, the audience got younger and younger for those movies. You know, Once Upon a Time, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, all those movies, like teenagers used to go to them like because we love them. But I feel like now the sensibility of good versus evil is very different. Game of Thrones changed that. A lot of things changed that. Stranger Things changed that. Netflix changed that. So um, And YouTube changed that. YouTube changed that for 100%. Mm -hmm. So I feel like what I try to do in the books is be as sophisticated as the kids are. And Soman is definitely keeping up. He and his team have created various online platforms to communicate with fans. And they even have an ongoing quiz about what percentage good or evil you are. We have a bank of about 100 questions, and they're all morally difficult questions. And we've had over 3 million kids take this test, and it tells you what percentage of your soul is good and what percentage of your soul is evil. 
that's become our entrance exam. It's at schoolforgoodandevil.com, and every day we put up the leaders on our little leaderboard. It's pretty awesome. So just how evil is Solmon? Like 75% evil. And while we're at it, I put the same question to Daniel Handler. I have a low percentage of actual conniving, plotting evil, but that I probably have an extremely healthy percentage of complete blind or caught up in my own agenda or my own point of view evil. So I don't know. I'll have to take the quiz, I guess. As a kid, Daniel was drawn to reading what he describes now as chaotic storytelling, like those stories of Edward Gorey and Roald Dahl. He also grew up hearing stories about his family during the Holocaust and how his father was lucky enough to get out of Germany in 1939. And over the years, he's noticed how people's immigration stories have stayed with him. They have the same thing of, we tried to do this and this didn't work. We tried to do this. This didn't work for us, but this worked for another part of my family. And those kind of stories, and I think they can't help but trickle into your work if you're a writer. And also those are the stories that have always spoken to me the most is in which you may be a very good person and you should try to be a good person. You may be very skilled, but ultimately there are so many circumstances outside your control and that your fate is not predestined and it is certainly not a result of your own philosophies or behaviors, but that it is something that has happened to you. And I think there's a great long tradition of Jewish literature that is like this, that the Snicket books uh, participate in. And it's not surprising to me that people who have had family histories that reflect that kind of chaos are often people who respond really well to it. A sense of chaos is certainly palpable throughout the bad beginning, as it's the children who come across as reasonable, whereas the adults seem to be incompetent. I think the journey of all 13 volumes of a series of unfortunate events is the journey from childhood to adulthood and that the Baudelaire's, as they get older and more experienced, are forced to compromise and they are forced into positions where they're doing things that they never thought they would do. And um, I think that's part of the journey into the corruptions of adulthood is that you end up saying exactly what you swore you'd never say, or you end up making a choice that would have seemed easy to you years ago because there was a really clear moral choice and now it doesn't seem that way. And also I think when you're a child, the questions that are on your mind and your own concerns seem utterly clear and they seem so often ignored. A series of unfortunate events goes out of its way to validate so many emotions that children might experience. Whether they're facing some sort of adversity in their everyday lives or feel powerless over a situation they're trying to overcome. I never thought I would, for instance, have much of a readership of people who had lost one or more parents. I always thought, these people are not going to want to read about orphans in troubled circumstances, and that's of course fine. But it's actually the opposite, because if you've lost a parent or more and you're very young, that's so senseless, that has such chaos at the heart of it, that you find comfort in the stories, not only maybe because they're orphans, but because they're taking care of each other, but also of the whole world, which is something can happen dreadful at any moment. And you're young and you can't do anything about it. When I asked Daniel to think about how big of a deal a series of unfortunate events has become, he told me that he never expected it to take off the way it did. It's been a bewildering journey for me. I've watched these books go all over the world, and I've met so many people who have read them and who are engage with them in one way or the other, people who love them and people who hate them. And I could just never believe it. And I'm on the classic podcast. That's got to be the highlight of everything. <laughs> um, 
No, but I just never, th I, I always thought I would make some tiny contribution of weird books that would be read by weird people. And it turns out they're more weird people than I thought, I guess. Special thanks to Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket, Susan Rich, and Soman Chainani for joining us. You can find out more about A Series of Unfortunate Events and The School for Good and Evil at harpercollins.com. Please keep helping us grow our listenership and tell at least one or two people you know about the podcast. Remember Reading is produced by Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, and I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>